The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest Trudy Bialik, who is the Director of Public Affairs for PCC. It's a natural market based in Seattle, Washington. She's also the editor of The Sound Consumer. Trudy, we met, uh, I guess it was several months ago, and got to learn a little bit about the PCC market. Tell me, how did you come to this job? Oh, boy. <laughs> Probably not the kind of answer you're looking for. I uh, was in the process of moving from the East Coast to the West Coast uh, to be closer to family, and it was actually my sister who said, you know, what you really care about more than anything that I see you really being passionate about is food and agriculture. Why don't you look for a job at PCC Natural Markets? So I did. I first was employed as a part-time deli worker, wrapping cheese, making sandwiches, things like that. Well, you've come a long way. And I have to tell you, I think PCC Market must feel really lucky to have you. You are one of the most well-informed and highly articulate individuals that I've met in the food system, and you're doing wonderful activism as well. I want to ask a little bit about, I want to go back and ask a little bit about what a cooperative is, because, you know, personally, I think cooperative models are truly ideal in a democratic society, but in many communities that I visit, it's really hard to find a cooperative grocery store. So tell me, what is a cooperative? A cooperative is just a different kind of business model. Instead of having the profits of a business, for example, be shipped out of state to faraway shareholders, the profits are returned back into the business and in the local community. For example, there can be worker cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, producer cooperatives. So in all those cases, they would have a business. In our case, we are a consumer cooperative. Our business is owned by the food shoppers who shop our store. Um, We also have a lot of shoppers, the vast majority of our shoppers are actually not member owners. They're casual shoppers, but those who feel a desire to be a part owner of the company and uh, have voting rights and have benefits return to them in proportion to the amount they purchase through the business, those are the people who are members who become our member owners. Well, I was so impressed when I was reading about PCC Markets, and I should just let our listeners know that I had an opportunity to visit PCC Natural Markets when I was in Seattle, and I was so impressed with not only the the diversity of foods that were offered in the market, but just the quality of the shopping experience. And when I learned that it was a cooperative, I was really surprised. And I learned that PCC started as a small food buying club with 15 (laughs) families in 1953. Yeah. And now you've got 45,000 members. It was a small buying club. A bunch of families wanted to get better deals on a a round of cheese or a sack of brown rice or whatever it was. It was really just a a conventional food buying club in the beginning, dented cans and so forth. It really turned into a natural, a focus on natural foods and organic foods in the 70s. And the rest is sort of history. Now we're a certified organic retailer. 
Yes, which is wonderful. And you've got your farmers highlighted in the in the different areas of the store, so the consumer feels like maybe they're not shopping at a farmer's market per se, but they feel connected to the farmer, and the, the, many of them are local. So you're keeping farmers on the land. All true. All true. All true. Well, I was also curious about how the cooperative grew so successfully in in those 50-plus years. PCC is now the largest consumer-owned natural food retail cooperative in the United States. How did all of that take place? Well, I wasn't here at the inception of it, although I am as old as the co-op. I was born in 53, so I think that's kind of ironic. (laughs) It is. But I, I think a lot of what was happening in the organic movement was certainly nationwide, but an awful lot of it was happening on the West Coast because that's where the vast majority of the nation's food is coming from, California, Oregon, even Washington. We have mild climates, and so it enabled a lot of people who were in the back-to-land movement in the 70s who were beginning organic producers, I think they gravitated to the West Coast for a variety of reasons. And I think because of that, we had the supply of a lot of great organic growers. There were Certainly it was true in the South and in parts of the Midwest and all across the country, but it was very, very strong here. And I think a progressive mindset combined with this ongoing desire to have a buying club and a, and a cooperative model, as, as you said, back to the 50s, um, I think that all just was a confluence of events. It all came together and never lost sight of the fact that it had to be a solid business, but also the principles of stewardship, sustainability, organics, that really propelled the buying decisions through the 70s, 80s, and certainly in the 90s when the organic standards were being developed. So we have evolved into this really successful organic retail model. We have nine stores now, 45,000, 45,000, or 47,000 members. It's a pretty vibrant operation. I don't know what else to say. Well, I think what I would say is that anyone looking for a national model of a successful cooperative would do well to check out the PCC website, and we'll make sure that we provide that for our listeners on, on the KOPN website. Trudy, do you have criteria that you use for purchasing products that are sold in the store? Yeah, and they're pretty they're pretty extensive. They are on the website. There are certain guidelines that are true for all the departments and then specific guidelines inside departments as well. Are there criteria in particular that you think are most important? Uh, yeah, I think, well, first of all, 94% of the produce we grow is organic. And so if you understand the organic standards, it means that they're grown without synthetic pesticides or fertilizers and without sewage sludge and without genetically engineered seeds. I think those three are huge to start with. And that's true for meat and poultry as well. If we are what they eat, if we are what a cow is eating and and what they produce in their milk, we are consuming what they were consuming. And a lot of our shoppers have figured that out. So they're asking questions particularly about pasturing, outdoor access, what are the animals eating, what are the humane welfare standards. All those things are part of our procurement guidelines. In seafood, we only sell wild seafood, and it's not because that there aren't some sustainable farm fish. The problem is that all farm fish have either ethoxyquin sprayed on the feed, which is true for all the feed that we've seen for all farm fish, which is a 
pesticide preservative sprayed on the feed to inhibit molding, but also um, because of the GMO feed fed to the farmed fish. So we just don't carry those kinds of products. In the deli, deli and bakery is a little different. Coffee and tea, for example, it's all fair trade, all shade grown, all organic, and I think that's rather unique, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else does it, A lot of emphasis is being placed recently on pasturing. Right. And so we're looking a lot at what are the pasturing policies of our vendors, of animal livestock producers. I love the way your purchasing decisions evolve with nutritional or public health science. I think that's really important that you stay so well-informed and then you change your purchasing policies accordingly. When we visited, you told a story about one of the dairy producers not playing well in the, in the collective sandbox and how you, you decided not to carry their products anymore. That's true, and that was a number of years ago. We realize that it's also our job. We realize that there are products that are going to be on the shelf that will be certified organic, that they're going to be on the market, but not all organic products have been created equal. It, it, remember that these organic standards are only eight years old. Right. They're still very much, very young. They're still very young, still in their childhood or adolescence at the very least. And there's a lot of... Um, a lot of policies that have not yet been defined. So when we determined that, what we did, we had heard things about some of the vendors supplying a brand, and we actually called for a meeting with the CEO of the company, giving them full opportunity to defend, argue, present whatever information they had. The company admitted that they knew that some of the suppliers to their brand would not meet the pasturing or outdoor access rules of the organic standards. They admitted that to us. And so we dropped the product as a, as a result on the whole line. It was the horizon at the time. Yeah, I think that those kind of collective actions are so critical, especially when you've got 45,000 members and those votes with those food dollars really make an economic impact. So I was thrilled to learn that story. And, and we should let our listeners know that, that since that incident, of course, um, mm-hmm. there are stronger pasture rules. So we're going to find that it's going to be more difficult for individuals not to find those loopholes. You know, it's a funny thing, too. I, when I go home to my visit my family in Ohio, my mom and I get into this. She thinks that organic is just a marketing gimmick. Oh, Trudy, it's all the same. There's no difference between that food and what I'm buying. You're just paying more money and you're having the wool pulled over your eyes. She doesn't want to hear it because once you hear the information about what is different about it, you cannot forget it. So once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. And I do find that my mom, one of my sisters, they don't want to know. It's like, la, 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 don't tell me because if I know, then I will have to do something about it. Yes, I, I think that's a that's a very important point. You've reminded me about a piece that's on your website, Celebrate Organics, and you've got five reasons to buy organic. 
And, oh, I guess it was several weeks ago, I interviewed Sandra Steingraber, who's a marvelous mm-hmm. ecologist. And she said, you know, actually, organic food is quite the bargain when you consider the unintended costs down the line. And I don't know whether you could would call this a fact sheet or just a, an educational piece on the PCC website that talks about these are indeed smarter choices for a healthier future. So I commend you for you know, looking at these difficult issues and um, teasing out all the different variables. Trudy, I want to ask you, you had mentioned seafood, and when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned the, the seafood problems with regard to the BP incident, the oil spill mm-hmm. in the Gulf, and how that affects all of us who are prefer. you know, of course, if you had a choice, would you rather buy shrimp from China or shrimp from the Gulf in the United States? Most of us would say, yeah, we want to keep our, our seafood industry strong. But now we've got these pollutants in the Gulf. And you mentioned that you had been working on a piece looking at oil and our food system. Do you want to talk about that? It was an article, actually, in the newsletter from the Center for Food Safety. And it was, and we adapted it to present it in the September issue. I think they, made this, I think they just made some great points that the BP oil spill what does it have to do with organics, or what does it have to do with food at all? It has a lot to do with food, actually, because when you think about 20% of all the energy used in this country, in the United States, 20% of the total is used for agriculture on synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, tractors, machinery, transportation, refrigeration, storage, and the upshot is also, seven to times more energy is used to produce the food than the energy we get from eating it. Hmm. However, the synthetic fertilizers and pesticides account for 40% of all the energy use in agriculture. So almost half of the energy used is for making synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. So when you're talking about energy and the need for oil and petroleum and how much oil is in the food we eat, Part of that BP oil spill is because of our consumption rate and because of the demand on agriculture, but also because the Gulf of Mexico was suffering from a catastrophe long before the BP oil spill. All that runoff from the synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, which are, of course, petroleum-based, and the pesticides and herbicides and fungicides, which are petroleum-based, all of those, all that runoff was running into the Gulf long before and had contributed, in fact, created that dead zone in the Gulf, which is, I don't know, what, as big as Massachusetts now or something? It's huge. It's huge. So because all that agricultural runoff from non-organic farming, that's a, that's a catastrophe in the Gulf long before BP even got there, and it all has to do with the amount of energy used in agriculture. Organic is far more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. saving about 30% of the energy over conventional farming, over non-organic farming. And I even hate saying conventional because really organic is the only true conventional. It's been around for millennia, and it's all that chemical stuff that is really the newcomer. So, If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Trudy Bialik, who is the Director of Public Affairs for PCC Natural Markets based in Seattle. PCC is the largest consumer-owned natural food retail cooperative in the United States, and Trudy also is the editor of The Sound Consumer, a wonderful publication with some of the most 
far-reaching concepts about our food system. I've, even though this market is based in Seattle, I want to do a call out for everyone across the country to go to the website and learn more about our food system. We had been talking about the BP oil spill and about our dependence on oil in general with regard to the food system. And you had mentioned something about greenhouse gases. Do you want to just reiterate that? Well, I just wanted to point out that the BP oil spill is just insult to injury on top of the dead zone that's been created by all of the oil-based, petroleum-based fertilizers and pesticides that are used by non-organic producers. And in addition, not just the um, amount of petroleum-based inputs, but also the amount of greenhouse gases that non-organic agriculture emits. Um, organic, organic emits are fewer emissions, greenhouse gases, and sequesters don't know the figures, but sequesters a lot more in the soil, a lot more carbon in the soil than non-organic. Absolutely. In fact, it's one of the most important reasons to choose organic food is because of that carbon sequestration and, and soil protection, in my opinion. Trudy, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been looking at issues and compiling pieces for education for a long time. And I wanted to ask you what you thought are some of the most pressing issues affecting our food system today. Consolidation, mergers, acquisitions, buyouts, the integral, the, the vertical and horizontal integration that's occurring in the food industry and in agriculture. There's a big fight going on right now, of course, in Congress, part of the 2007 Farm Bill called out for certain rules to be written by USDA to ensure that the Packers and Stockyard Act was being enforced properly. And that's to prevent consolidation and larger companies from controlling the entire market. Mm-hmm. And there's a fight right now from uh, Democrats and Republicans with interest in their states who are challenging the USDA's authority to write rules mandated by legislation years ago. So that's just one example of how it's continuing by powerful interests, deep pockets, and I think that consumers have far fewer choices in the supermarket because of growing consolidation than they did when we had far more competition in the market. And that's really what these bills are all about, is to restore fair markets and competition. So smaller producers, mid-sized producers also can get in there and uh, compete. Yeah, I wanted to thank you for a letter that you wrote in December of 2009 to the U.S. Department of Justice, and it had to do with the whole issue of antitrust. And this is an excellent letter. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I, I find this kind of information to be quite confusing, economic concentration in agriculture and how am I as a consumer going to do anything about it. But what you do in this letter is you you explain the different components of concentration and why we should be concerned. And you have one paragraph here that I think is really important for consumers to kind of have a wake-up call, and you say, strolling the aisles of any supermarket gives the illusion of a richly diverse food supply. In truth, we rely today on about eight animal species and 150 species of plants. Correct. That is absolutely true. And that's the result of consolidation and vertical and horizontal concentration. And actually, uh, where you are in Missouri, you have one example right there of the concentration of genetics and specific seeds 
with Monsanto and genetically engineered seeds, it reduces biodiversity even further. It absolutely does, and I know that uh, the Department of Justice is in the process of looking at this issue right now, and for people who want to learn more, I do recommend going to the pccnaturalmarkets.com website and plan on spending a little while there. Judy, are there any other issues in addition to consolidation? I think that's probably the most overriding problem. If you take care of consolidation, you're taking care of the problem of farmers getting a fair price for what they produce. And I think it was Jim Hightower many years ago who said that if you give farmers a fair price for what they produce, all the other problems that they face are solved, such as the high cost of credit, attracting young farmers, the high cost of input, the high cost of bank credit. All those problems, or fair markets, all those problems dissolve if you give them a fair price for what they're producing. Um, when you break out the amount of how much farmers earn for what they produce at the retail level, the retail dollar, the very small portion, the smaller and smaller amount is going to the growers themselves. No wonder we're having a crisis in attracting farmers to the land. Mm-hmm. Right. You've got to make it, you've got to make it a viable occupation. And I strongly feel that you've got to give, somehow this country has got to give farmers and farm workers health care universally because so many farmers are leaving to go take jobs in town just because someone in the house has to get medical benefits. That's right. So we're forcing people who own farms to leave the land and go work in town just so they can get medical. Give farmers medical coverage, keep them producing food, it would help ensure our national food security. I totally agree with you. And I think that it's the movement off the farm that leaves farmers prey to those illusion of easy messages. You know, like like the simple use of Roundup Ready seeds, for example. You know, you're going to just spray once and then you'll have all this extra time. And now, of course, we're looking at problems related to weed resistance and pest resistance and as well as seed patents and seed ownership. One of the issues that you have listed, it's under the issues and education heading that I clicked on, and you've compiled a marvelous list of issues that I think are important for all eaters to be thinking about. And one of them is genetically modified food. You know, you mentioned the consolidation of the the food industry. When sugar beets became genetically modified to withstand the application of the herbicide Roundup, I found that my choices in the marketplace had narrowed even more because now I couldn't buy anything that contained genetically modified sugar. And I didn't want to buy it because I didn't want the residues of the pesticide on my food, nor did I want to support a genetically modified food system or a genetically engineered food system. How do you deal with those kinds of issues at PCC markets? I mean, are you always looking at labels and looking for the next genetically engineered ingredient, and will you keep those kinds of products out of the store? Well, as you know, because they're not labeled, they're really hard to track sometimes. The best the best guard and the best um, way to avoid GMO so far has been to buy organic. Mm-hmm. I think now we also have the non-GMO project, which is using a test-based system along with requiring best practices out sources of contamination. So I think 
between those two things, um, it's going to become a little bit easier. Plus, I think there is a change of sentiment on, on Capitol Hill. I was very, I was very surprised, and in fact, I guess I should say that, I was very surprised almost by the Supreme Court's ruling on alfalfa, and I think that leaving the challenge open for farmers to be able to challenge biotech interests for contamination, I think is a, they've left that door open. I think that's really, um, we're going to see more of that. We're seeing it already with rice farmers. We've got uh, five or six rice farmers already who have sued Bayer successfully for contaminating their fields and causing a loss of their crops. So I think we're going to see more of that. Absolutely. And the power that you have with your cooperative decisions to to reject players that aren't that we don't want in the store. I think you have a great deal of power there. I'm sorry, I'll give you another example. Please do. Another example is in the high fructose corn syrup is what I was going to say. Right. Because none of our products, we have eliminated all products in our stores that contain high fructose corn syrup. It's not just because of the potential health concerns. It is a cheap sweetener, a commodity crop, genetically engineered, and there are simply more healthy, uh, more sustainable crops and healthier foods, sweet, healthier sweeteners. Why go with the cheapest and the most genetically engineered? We want, it, we want the most natural ones. So we're starting to emphasize, even in our baked goods, we're using fruit juice and, uh, I want to say rice syrup, honey, some of those things in sweetening our deli baked goods as well. So high fructose corn syrup is not even just used in any baking, it's not in any products anywhere. And that has, that we've gotten mail from all over the country about that. So it's not just GMOs, it's also just that there are better alternatives. Well, well, Trudy, I want to thank you. Um, Our time has evaporated, and I knew it would. But I want to thank you for all that you're doing to educate consumers and for keeping the PCC Natural Markets going strong. We will provide the website for the market. It is www.p, as in Peter, ccnaturalmarkets.com. And with regard to the sweeteners, you've also got an excellent consumer education piece titled A Guide to Natural Sweeteners, if, if anyone wants to learn more about that. You have been listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Trudy, I want to thank you so much for your work. My pleasure. And listeners, I want to thank you for joining us. In closing, Trudy Bialik, Director of Public Affairs for PCC Natural Markets based in Seattle, and also the editor of The Sound Consumer. Thank you again, Trudy. My pleasure. It's a delight.